Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. Artificial intelligence or AI for short has been with us for a while now, but it has become increasingly salient in the past few years. Countries are investing in AI not just as a tool of development in their own domestic context, but also as an instrument that can afford them military, economic and geopolitical advantage over their rivals. Such increased salience has driven states and corporations to develop and innovate their AI capabilities. On the other hand, lawyers and human rights activists have been concerned about the potential fallouts of unrestrained development and deployment of AI-based technologies. With the imperatives for innovation and ethical concerns at something of a loggerheads with one another, how do we strike the right balance as we go forward? To help us think through these questions, we have with us today Chinmay Arun and Matt Sheehan. Chinmay is a resident fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale Law School and is also an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center of Internet and Society at Harvard University. She was the founding director of the Center for Communication Governance at the National Law University, Delhi. Matt Sheehan is a fellow at Macropolo, which is the Paulson Institute's in-house think tank and is the author of The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. His research focuses on US-China technology issues with an interest in artificial intelligence. Chinmay, Matt, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So can we just start by maybe talking a little bit about what really the cutting edge of artificial intelligence looks like today? You know, when we talk of artificial intelligence, especially in, in a sort of broader public conversation, a lot of it tends to be about super intelligence, you know, the kind of Nick Bostrom kind of story about where we are going with all of this. That seems to be more in the domain of general intelligence rather than where the technological frontier currently is. So uh, Matt, maybe you could help us get started off by talking a little bit about where the frontier lies today, where exactly is innovation happening, and we could take it from there. Sure. Yeah, I think in this, you kind of have two different mindsets and two different models. One of them, which falls a little bit more in line with the Bostrom superintelligence, artificial general intelligence, which is kind of comes out of uh, a specific but pretty important research community. And then you have the broader model of applying deep learning to a whole bunch of different tasks, and that has its own frontier. So in terms of the the research frontier, those pursuing artificial general intelligence, you have uh, companies like OpenAI and DeepMind that have this as a very specific goal. And they have moved a lot from sort of deep learning and supervised learning into reinforcement learning. So functionally uh, letting AI systems train themselves on hopefully increasingly broad tasks, not just, you know, identify a face or something like that, but uh, defeat a very complex video game like StarCraft. And there has been a lot of very interesting and exciting work to come out of that community. And they're pushing the frontier and some people are very bullish on the direction that that is going to go. They're the bulk of sort of the AI as industry or AI as applied to national security is in a different arena. That's taking pretty well-established principles of deep learning and basically applying them to, you know, thousands of different problems. And there it's, 
in the research continues to be important in the realm of say like natural language processing is having a big kind of breakthrough couple of years in terms of being able to do a better job of analyzing text, uh, creating text and stuff like that. So you do have a research frontier there that is very meaningful and, and product driven, but a lot of the kind of interesting, exciting stuff is more about the interface between the very well-established things and and how you deploy it in the real world. How do governments adapt to it? How are our societies going to adapt to whether it's, you know, self-driving cars or deep fakes online, all these things that are technically sort of within our grasp already or based on technical foundations that are well-established as just a question of integrating it into society and building business models around it. So those are kind of the two camps that I follow. Right. And the second camp seems to be broadly what you'd call as machine learning. I mean, that seems to be the main uh, domain in which a lot of the uh, work is being done in terms of applications. In, in addition to reinforcement learning, the big reason that people are interested in AI is that um, machines are now able to use big data sets for their learning. And so if you want to take a few examples of that, you might have heard of uh, sentencing algorithms that use statistics from the past to decide how, ju- how judges should sentence in particular cases. So that's one way to go. The other is that a lot of people followed AlphaGo, um, where a machine essentially won a very difficult game. That was a combination where they fed in the data sets of multiple games so that the machine was able to learn from what happened in the past. And then it was able to try things and learn from its own experience also. But it's really, it's the use of big data sets, I think, that has made AI so interesting to people today, because now there's computational power and there's the capacity to store infinite amounts of data. And that's really where uh, machine learning has been taken to the next level. The concept has always existed, but this is why we're now interested in AI. And it seems to me that, you know, when we're talking about machine learning and this kind of artificial intelligence, it's intelligence in a somewhat narrowly circumscribed sort of fashion. Um, you know, yesterday you'd refer to this uh, article by Jonathan Zutrain, which uh, is a very interesting one in The New Yorker, where he says that, listen, ultimately these are ways really of establishing large-scale correlations. Uh, they tell you very little about causal inferences that can be made, let alone the kind of judgments that should be made. So, uh, so it's still operating within a fairly narrow domain of what constitutes knowledge, doesn't it? That's right. Um, I, I think that what's disturbing is that we now have the tendency to assume that machines make judgments like humans do or that they have an infinite capacity for knowledge, um, whereas what they're working off is big data sets, as you say. So a machine might flag a person saying that they have a say, a high rate of being convicted for a particular crime. A human may choose to read what the machine says as uh, a judgment on whether that individual should be convicted for a crime, which are very different things. Um, and so Jonathan Zittrain used to be my uh, my boss last year. I, I worked on his team. And one of my other colleagues always used this example for, for sentencing algorithms, saying that people say the sentencing algorithm is biased because it tends to flag people of color more. But actually what the machine is flagging is that the people of color have a a higher likelihood of being sent to prison, which is very different from the people of color deserve to be sent to prison. And so you're right that one is that it's correlation, but it's also that we, um, we need to understand what question the machine is answering. And I think that we often get that wrong. Right. And uh, in, in the domain of national security, I mean, uh, how much of uh, AI really can substitute for the kinds of synthetic judgments that, say, decision makers uh, dealing with actual situations would have to do? Yeah, I think it's in many ways similar to what you were just asking and discussing about sort of the narrowness of the capabilities. There are some very obvious, intuitive, simple and straightforward, but potentially very impactful applications of 
AI in different forms to national security. So one that got a lot of attention was using computer vision for drone strikes. This was a project maven out of the Department of Defense, and there was a big hoopla because they were partnering with Google, and Google had kind of an employee revolt against working with the Department of Defense. But aside from the kind of uh, the tensions around that, it's the most in many ways, the most straightforward application of AI to national security. Currently, we need a lot of human eyeballs to be making a lot of judgments about what is this, what is that? Is that a wedding party or is that a you know a meeting of uh, people that we're trying to take out? Um, same thing with just kind of uh, surveillance, but not in the domestic sense, sort of you're a, a troop at an outpost and your job is to just stand here and look at the horizon for hours and hours. It's pretty straightforward to make a human a machine replacement in that area because computer vision is like a very well-established field that has pretty high degrees of accuracy despite its flaws. So I think there's there's this kind of relatively superficial level of applying AI to national security. And then you can cut at layers that go deeper and deeper. So you can cut at uh, using machine learning in Cyber cyber attacks or cyber defense in terms of coming up with increasingly complex ways to attack computer systems and to build up your defenses. That's not as because it's a what we would say is an unstructured environment. There are tons and tons of factors potentially coming into play. It's not just looking at you know a limited number of pixels and making a judgment. It's about strategy. It's about uh, identifying weaknesses. And so that gets a little bit more complex. And then when you get to the sort of the most complex level of really letting AI lead or guide battlefield decisions in a completely unstructured environment where you're not just dealing with sort of combating forces, but you have to think about the, how this plays politically and you have to think about how this plays with your boss and the bureaucracy. And that is the kind of general intelligence that we're not really close to. I think people have ambitions and some people will hype that capability. In China, they talk a lot about sort of AI for war gaming and decision making. But I would say that that remains um a bit distant from what is actually being done. And I presume that as with most other kinds of technology, which has been used for military and strategic application, uh, sooner or later, it's going to be a two-way process. The other side is going to have access to some of that stuff, which is then going to make it a lot more complicated, right? I was just thinking of, you know, there was this famous uh, experiment which was done about, you know, facial recognition software and, you know, with, with identifying those kittens whose eyes were changed a little bit and the software ended up predicting it as guacamole, right? I mean, so uh, those are the kinds of challenges which potentially an adversary will use to deploy uh, their own AI capabilities in order to confound yours. So how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, we think of these, we call these adversarial examples. So when you're able, because what uh, computer vision is doing, it kind of gets to what you were just speaking of a minute ago in terms of, we think that they're they're processing these images in the way that a human does. And we say, oh yeah, that, that looks like a cat. And I, I know what a cat is and it has this structure and whatnot. That's not how the AI is seeing it. They're, they're, they're just seeing pixels as mathematical, as a mathematical equation, a bunch of vectors and um, matrices and using sort of correlation across numbers to make these predictions. And what they found in certain adversarial examples is very, very minute tweaks to the numbers in those matrices, which barely register to a human eye, somehow sort of break the algorithm and make, you know, a cat be identified as guacamole. So this is an area that's getting a lot more attention, how to combat adversarial examples. And it's kind of 
you know, this is kind of the maturity of the field as a whole. You spend a long time just, uh, you know, uh, deep learning as applied to big data with a lot of compute kind of happens. And suddenly everyone's just interested in harvesting all the fruit. And, oh, we can do this. And, oh, we can do that. And, oh, we can do this. And the field as well as the public is now catching up to the fact that, you know, oh, wait a minute, as we do this, it's not just about having kind of a flashy demonstration, but these are going to have real world consequences. And in some cases, you're going to have an adversary. And so the whole field of, you know, robustness, uh, interpretability of algorithms, uh, dealing with adversarial examples, defects, it's all now emerging as something that happens both in the public consciousness and in the research field. And of course, the other domain of power, which is being radically redefined, uh, it seems, by AI is economics, right? And uh, how economic power operates, which partly seems to be the reason why, you know, countries are making a beeline to have these national AI strategies of one kind or the other. Uh, but, but could you give us a sense of how do you think the standard ways in which, uh, you know, economies are organized and capitalism as a system has functioned is, is being transformed by some of these um, cutting edge developments now? I've been having a little trouble separating uh, the ways in which AI policy is being articulated from the neoliberal agenda. Um, and so uh, a lot of the AI strategies that I've been reading about suggest heavy cooperation with the private sector without having any conversations with people, for example, who work with food security. And so if you read a lot of national policy documents, you're, you're seeing a discussion of AI as a magic solution to things like food security, predictive policing, education. And I think it's important to bear in mind that that suggests that there may be a reallocation of resources. I am not an economist, so I will not claim to be an expert on this. And I'm all for exploring interesting solutions that might scale. But I think that before we move to treating technology like it's the magic bullet, we really need to reconsider the allocation of resources dramatically for, from a sector like AI completely to technology, right? And, and consider... Um, what the large scale consequences might be. Um, and so one of the most disturbing programs that I've seen uh, proposed is, is using AI for education by creating smart classrooms for children. And the suggestion has been that there aren't enough teachers to reach uh, rural districts. And so what we need is like the smart classroom. What that entails is violating the privacy of children from a very young age, because to create, to use this AI, what they're proposing is a data loop. Uh, and so the children are recorded and, and uh, the education is supposed to be tailored to them. And I think that almost anyone can recognize the problems that immediately emerge from this, both for the privacy of children, but also if you completely remove human teachers from the loop, what are the consequences of doing that? I don't, you know, I've not seen enough of an assessment of it. Uh, but in general, I mean, from the perspective of developers or people who are working on AI, I mean, every human being is just a digital footprint, right? I mean, isn't that the assumption on which big data collection and the kind of algorithms that you've been talking about operate. I mean, we're not really thinking here about human systems, right? We should be. Um, yeah. And, and perhaps this disconnect that you you get at is, is exactly the problem, right? That, um, you know, when I, when I talk to my friends and family that are on the development side of this, they say, oh, why do you keep getting upset with the technology? The technology is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's the humans that are deploying it badly. Uh, but I, I think that there's a there's, there's almost a problem in the way in which the two talk to each other because the developers are not really thinking of the the whole of the consequences for society. They're excited about this one thing that, that could work the way in which they intend for it to work. And they don't know what happens when that thing meets society or meets a particular sector. And I think from the government's point of view, they're casting around for interesting and innovative solutions. And this looks like one. 
Uh, but if they don't check to see, again, what the long-term consequences of deployment might be, then what they're doing is they're having the conversation with the person that is most excited and most in a position to lobby them for the use of this particular strategy. We don't know if it's the best one. And in your work, the one aspect that you've sort of dealt with that, uh, very insightfully is is the problem that uh, you know artificial intelligence systems and ways of reaching decisions might actually end up exacerbating existing patterns of exclusion, of discrimination, even though we may be thinking that we're actually sort of sidestepping them in some ways, right? So the system gives us a sense that, listen, we've got this scientific way of doing things, whereas actually in it may end up replicating and reinforcing all kinds of social pathologies. That's right. Uh, and in our case, that might, for example, be caste. There's a lot of excellent scholarship in the U.S. about um, how uh, how existing discrimination on grounds of something like race can be perpetuated and basically permanently embedded in systems if uh, if AI if if autonomous systems are used in this manner. Um, an example that I believe Safia Noble uses uh, through her studies is that if you feed uh, databases of hiring for a hospital. Um, into an autonomous system, then what the autonomous system might learn from that database is that we want to hire white males. Um, now, that's not really what where you want the AI to get, but if you feed it, um, they, they call it garbage in, garbage, garbage out, and AI can, AI can only give you the solution uh, that, that the data offers it. Um, and as you say, um, the, the trouble with this is that then we say that, okay, this is sort of the fair and balanced Solution, it's not a human being and AI can't feel and it has no reason to support one community over the other. So why would the AI be biased? The reason is that the AI only knows what you teach it. And so if what the AI is learning is from generations of biased human beings, then the AI will be biased. And unlike a human being, the AI will not question its own decision to be biased. So on the flip side, AI might also then help us understand how these kinds of biases have been operating over generations. I mean, by by you could potentially use the same set of algorithms to highlight patterns of you know, discrimination and bias within societies as well? Perhaps if you know what you're looking for. So I, since, since I'm not a computer scientist, I wouldn't be able to tell you specifically how that would happen. But there are scholars that have suggested that we might uh, use AI to technologically audit other AI. And, and that's an interesting idea to explore. But I, I think that it is important to be conscious of the fact that AI um, in its essence, is almost biased. Um, I believe that uh, Sarah Myers West and the other and her colleagues from the uh, AI Now Institute they call them systems of discrimination because the idea is that the AI is looking for a pattern. The AI is looking to say that this person is a better hire than that other person statistically, right? And that embeds in it whatever reasons the AI has gleaned. Um, are good reasons for making that decision. And again, objectively, they may not be good reasons, but based on the data set, uh, the AI might believe that they are good reasons. And I, when, when we're designing for policy, it, I think that it's important to be conscious of these things. So again, when you have a conversation um, with someone that really believes in the power of AI, they'll say that, well, okay, maybe we can insist that the algorithm disregards gender or doesn't account for caste. But then you have the problem of the proxy because the AI is an intelligence system. It gets from the data something like if a person lives in this particular district, has this last name, and their parents or they have held this kind of job, then that would make them a candidate that is a more likely hire than another. Um, and, and these three factors might be proxy for race or caste. And, and that's something that we need to be aware of when we're designing AI. So, so you know, that's, um, that's one of the kinds of discrimination that literature points to. The other is just very simply the total design of AI. Uh, and so we discussed this also yesterday and today. 
which is that, again, AI works with what it has in front of it. And so even if the manner in which we collect data is uh, is arguably biased, male or female versus which leaves out transsexuals and people that identify otherwise, then again, we're asking the AI to render some people invisible and some people invisible. And, and that can result in discrimination. Sure. And notwithstanding all imperfections and challenges that we have, uh, it does seem like in fairly short order, AI has become something of a currency of power in geopolitical terms as well. Uh, and, and what exactly is driving that, Matt? I mean, why is it that countries suddenly feel that, listen, this is such an important piece of technology that, you know, getting a lead in this is somehow going to define who is going to be the great powers and how they operate, what kind of influence they wield in the international system and so on? Yeah, I think that has two parts to it. One part is the changes in the underlying technological capabilities, and the other part is the change in how we talk about this. So the change in the underlying capabilities is very real in the sense that a decade ago, uh, AI just could not do very much that was useful to real people in any way. You know, we had uh, beaten humans in chess as of the 1990s, but unless your, you know, job was trying to win at chess, there wasn't a whole lot that AI was going to do for you as a company or as a country. And the period from, you know, you can date it differently, but basically 2012 to the present day with the rise of deep learning, there have been fundamental changes in the capabilities of the technology. It's still very brittle. It's still very fallible. It still has a lot of problems with deployment, but the the, the game has changed in that way. You know, people analogize this differently. It's the AI is the new electricity, AI is the new, you know, whatever analogy one wants. And a lot of them are very flawed, but just thinking in terms of scale of potential impact, the thing that I go to is other what we call general purpose technologies. It's like an economist term for uh, baseline innovations that end up kind of empowering and transforming a bunch more things. So the steam engine is a classic one, um, electricity, the internet, something that will ripple out and affect all different sectors in many different ways to, you know, if you were in uh, right at the dawn of the steam engine and we try to say, you know, what, what are the implications of this going to be? And people say, well, well, it's kind of weak today. You know, you can't really do that much with it. Uh, we'll let, you know, England handle that for now. You would be setting yourself back uh, dramatically as a country. And so whether or not the nation states are kind of accurate in their perception of the timing of this. I would say that I I fall into the camp that believes that the the implications are going to be on that kind of scale um, in terms of applying it to a million different problems, whether it's autonomous vehicles, lending, uh, every aspect of perception, robotics, manufacturing, it's, it's rippling out. So I'd say that's one big part of it is the the underlying changes in what the technology can do is driving that kind of geopolitical conversation. The other part is the conversation itself. Um, you know, the a lot of what accelerated this was the deployment of the Chinese National AI Plan in 2017, summer of 2017. And it's a very impactful and interesting plan. Um and it also came at a time of kind of deep insecurity within the U.S. about, you know, what's our role in the world? Where do we stand vis-a-vis -vis China? And so just the idea that China would set out these very bold, ambitious goals. We want to be the world leader in AI innovation by 2030, even though that statement is in no way really directly actionable. Uh, the. It, it, it landed at a time that the U.S. was getting very ready to be very worried about China across a whole bunch of different dimensions. And that 
drove a lot of the U.S.-China rivalry. And I think that kind of spins off into many other areas with other countries believing they need to imitate this with their own national AI plan. So that's kind of how I would chart it. Are we sort of just caught up in a cycle where every time a new piece of technology comes in, we tend to assume that you know this is going to make all the difference to the way that geopolitics operates, right? I mean, I think of, say, the discussion around semiconductors in the late 1980s between the United States and Japan, right? When, when the United States actually forced Japan to open up get market quotas, voluntary export restraints. In fact, some of the dramatis personae, including the USTR, was then deputy USTR under the Reagan administration, right? So I just wonder, are we sort of uh, picking on certain pieces of technology and just assuming that it's going to make all the difference? Uh, how do we go about measuring this? You've done some work where you suggest that, you know, some of the broad ways in which we are thinking about it might not be actually good enough. Uh, and here I think of the work of someone like Kai-Fu Lee, who says that China actually might have a lead simply because we are sitting on, you know, this masses of data, which, which cannot be at least in quantitative terms replicated uh, by other countries. So that gives China uh, an opportunity to become an AI superpower and so on. Yeah. So you're, there are two different questions in there in terms of measuring impact and measuring capabilities. Impact, you know, there are many sort of proxies for this as it has rolled out across different areas. You can basically see the bump in Google and Facebook's earnings when they start applying deep learning to their advertising products. And suddenly, wow, they're surfacing advertisements that get clicked on a whole lot more. They're dramatically increasing their revenue. And there are parallels to that across a bunch of different industries so far because the technology is still immature in the way it's applied. It tends those impacts tend to be in industries that are highly sort of quantifiable, very little sort of human element, everything is captured digitally. So digital advertising, finance, which is a numbers game fundamentally. So there we can see the impact side of it. In terms of the capabilities and measuring those, that's a question very near and dear to my heart. And I think it's about, we're in this period of progressively getting more sophisticated and more specific in what we're talking about. Two, three years ago, you could just make a statement along the lines of, yes, you know, China, so much data, China will be number one. Uh, U.S., we have uh, great research. We're number one. And it's just the, these that, you know, had a role at a time when the conversation was at zero, but it's time to make the conversation progressively more and more sophisticated. So the, the approach that I take, which is just one approach and, you know, an improvised approach by someone who, uh, you know, is as ignorant as everybody else, is to try to break AI down into its sort of respective building blocks and then come up with either quantitative analyses or frameworks for analyzing each of those building blocks. So the ones that I currently work with are data talent, mostly in the form of research talent, a uh, semiconductors, the corporate ecosystem and the government. So kind of five key building blocks that have to come together to make AI deployment at a national level um, succeed. And the 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 metrics that we're using for all of these are really they're being invented on the fly. Um, by a bunch of mostly like 20 something year olds. It's very scary when you look at the AI policy field. And uh, yeah, it's because it's something that no one was interested in as of seven years ago. The people who are making the biggest impact tend to be much younger. And that's exciting and scary at the same time. But, you know, I've tried to come up with uh, frameworks for how do we compare data ecosystems, quantitative metrics for how do we compare research talent, um, you know, you, in some areas, there are some things that are easier to quantify and some things that we need to have more of like a conversation around. So I think government plans are a conversation. And I think increasingly, yeah, I, I loop it all under sort of the government interaction with the AI ecosystem. But that gets 
that can be interpreted a bunch of ways in terms of the ethical concerns that we were just discussing. It can be the sort of subsidies. It can be the constraints that the government will put on it. And yeah, we're in a period of time where we need to start getting really down to like nuts and bolts of how do all these things interact and how do we picture them as a, as a whole. And Chenma, India has a plan as well. Uh, could you talk us a little bit about what you think are the most salient features of that? And- I can't describe the entire plan. Of course, it's some 127 Uh, pages. But I I do think, I mean, if it's okay, I'll discuss the India plan specifically in terms of its approach to data, which I think is a little disturbing because the Indian plan seems to be excited about the fact that we have all this data that can be extracted and used um, to build AI and sort of machine learning systems. And now that you talk about China, Matt, I can see where that's coming from. <laughs> uh, clearly, India's like, well, we've got lots of people too. Um, and it's um, it's almost like, a, I, I hate to use the word colonial, but it's definitely a terribly capitalist approach to people because we're thinking of them, as you said earlier, as data points. And we're not thinking about what the impact of using them as data points and learning certain things from their data might be to them. The other problem with the Indian plan, as I read it, is that it's thinking entirely in terms of Indian companies need to be the ones to extract this potential. And I, again, appreciate where they're coming from, because if you think of how much Google and Facebook might have learned from the behavior of Indian users, I can see that they would want that learning to also happen in India. But their their proposals, like maybe we should localize data, maybe we should sort of cabin all this data off internally and then make sure that Indian companies are the ones learning from them are not, again, constructive if you're if what you're interested in is the rights of the people and in development for everyone. Um, and so I, I do think that the Indian plan might be better crafted if they include other perspectives, which would mean, I, I think, more consultation, specifically with people that work in the grassroots um, and who are concerned with what the actual improvement of people's lives look like. So so that's partly it. The second is that um, I actually worked on privacy for many years before I came to AI. And my shift over the last couple of years has really been uh, that AI seems to be considered the new impactful technology. And what we already know about privacy is deeply inadequate to deal with AI. So to give you an example, Indian law um, only deals with targeted surveillance, which is you know who you want to track, you give good reasons for tracking them, and then you can track them. And so the instance mass surveillance technology was invented, which is that you can just track multiple people at the same time and scan them for their speech and decide that this particular stream of people are generally troublemaking. There's Indian law doesn't know how to cope with that because it never anticipated it. Technology changed. And I think that that's the same problem with AI, right? That if you have decisions being made based on big data sets, um, Ian Kerr actually wrote about this really powerfully. He said that we may have a problem sometimes with human beings going through mass data sets. But when it's a robot looking at our data, we haven't really thought about what kind of intrusive that is. And we should because that also has consequences for us. Um, So I think that that's really where India is at, that our law really needs to move forward and it needs to move forward in a way in which the constitutional principles continue to protect the people. And that's really the perspective that I tend to come from. This technology is racing forward at a pace at which we're not able to keep up with it. And the problem is that we're so excited about keeping up with the technological race that we're not doing enough to make sure that we protect the people in the process. And, and it seems to be the thinking of it as a technological race or as something which in some senses we need to think of almost like an autarkic system, right? I mean, it is a China has got to have its own firewall entity. 
perhaps India and other countries are thinking along the same lines. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, every time you put open systems, whether it's economic systems in very strongly competitive geopolitical fields, that kind of closure inevitably happens, right? I mean, we saw that happening in the interwar years. I mean, practically every great power, right? But the British kind of created their own imperial trading system. The Americans went down a certain route of the New Deal, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, everyone, right? So in a sense, are we in the danger of tipping over into those kinds of hyper-competitive, geopolitically driven, closed models as far as AI? Or is it going to be innovation which is going to benefit all? I think we're definitely in danger of making that transition. Or you could say that we're well into that transition. And some people would even say it's inevitable that we make that transition. I I think a lot of it has to do with kind of what culture are you coming out of? Not national culture, but kind of like industry culture. Um, I, for a long time, was a reporter in China. And, uh, you know, I thought of my job as like, I got to get, you know, the Chinese and the Americans to understand each other. You know, I want to help them communicate and, you know, whatever, be sympathetic to one another and understand where the other side is coming from. I moved back to the U.S. in 2016 and started focusing more on the technology relationship and in the last couple of years, as you've had what you're describing, this kind of like uh, political revenge on technology or political sort of uh, getting involved in technology again, the new divide that I'm trying to cross is between sort of Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., where you same thing. You have two sides completely talking past each other, um, kind of ignorant of each other's concerns, technologists being very ignorant, not just of like political, geopolitical concerns, but a lot of the ethical concerns that Chinmay is speaking to, where, yeah, they're, they're excited about the potential. They're excited about an idea without a proper context for how does this relate to whether it's discrimination or sort of national security. And, you know, D.C., uh, which I'm using as kind of a foil in this, as a similar approach to Silicon Valley, they have uh, a very... Their thinking is based on sort of the movement of bureaucracies and competition between states without any thought really to how does this potentially empower people in a good way. And so I see kind of my new job is not helping China and the U.S. Uh, understand that they're helping, you know, Silicon Valley and D.C. or say Silicon Valley and, um, you know, the uh, nonprofit, the uh, the world that's concerned about the implications of this talking to one another. So I think the the broad tilt towards a very politicized or geopoliticized technology world is well underway. And I would almost say that there's a part of it that's inevitable, um, particularly if the technology kind of lives up to what many people believe it will in terms of capabilities. And from my perspective, it's more about doing that in a smart way, not doing it in a way that constantly shoots yourself in the foot, that it doesn't shoot your own sort of technological development in the foot. Um, and it also doesn't, you know, shoot your national security or your ethical concerns in the foot. And I think this conversation is just getting started between the two sides. And so far, it's been a lot of kind of like, you know, stamping of feet and gnashing of teeth with, you know, uh, people at Google saying we're not going to work on anything related to the Department of Defense. People in government saying, you know, whatever, Google, Facebook, get the hell out of China, you, you know, you're traitors and whatnot. And like we're in the conversations even just the last year have changed a lot in terms of people in government wanting to actually bring sort of machine learning researchers into their field to understand the constraints and people in Silicon Valley understanding, okay, this, the wild west is kind of over in this realm. And if we want to do this sustainably over time, we need to bring different actors into this equation and start taking on their thoughts. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of pessimistic about the, uh, 
geopolitical national securitization of the technology sphere, but I'm optimistic that we're moving towards doing it in a more productive or less sort of a self-destructive way. So is it cautiously optimistic or cautiously pessimistic? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a born optimist, so I'm always cautiously optimistic. Great. Uh, and before we sign off, uh, is there any book, article or report that you've read lately that you think would be useful for our listeners uh, to get their hands on uh, and to learn more about this constantly evolving, changing field of knowledge, really? I'll recommend two things that are uh, not books and not articles, but can help learn in this way. So one of them, and they're both because my focus is on US-China, they're both in that area. So uh, one of them is called the China AI Newsletter, where China and AI smashed into one word. Um, it's run by a guy named Jeff Ding at Oxford, who's very smart. And he basically does a, a weekly or near weekly analysis of not just kind of these uh, geopolitical capability concerns, but what are the conversations going on in the Chinese AI space? What do they have, you know, when something bubbles up, whether it's, uh, you know, domestic concerns about facial recognition or, uh, you know, China's reaction to, say, new entity listings by the U.S., new blacklists on Chinese firms. He does a very good job of kind of tapping into listening in on the Chinese conversations and then translating them for global readers. And I think that that's, and when I say global, English language readers. Um, I think that's a hugely important task uh, that we just need to get better at. China, Chinese technologists are very much have their ear to the ground in terms of what are we talking about here. Even some of the ethical concerns that are very taboo to discuss in China, they still get transmitted back by way of people, uh, Chinese reporters writing about these things happening in the U.S. So uh, the China AI newsletter, second plug would be for um, a podcast because we're on a podcast called uh, Tech Buzz China. It's run by uh, two young women in the Bay Area, uh, friends of mine, and where they do a, basically a weekly analysis of a different company or phenomenon in the Chinese technology space, similarly kind of demystifying and uh, getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's what are the conversations that are really happening in China about these technologies. And so I'd say both of those can be hugely informative if people are interested in that aspect. Chinmay? I would suggest um, Artificial Unintelligence by Meredith Broussard. It is fun um, and it teaches you to question technology in ways in which I think you should. Um, Safia Noble has also recently written a book, I forget the name, uh, but it's excellent if you're interested in questions of discrimination. It's focused on the US, but it's very readable. And I think it helps us ask the right questions about India. There's an Oxford ha handbook on AI and ethics coming out soon. So I think that might be an interesting read for people who want a full spectrum. They've taken the trouble to commission articles from around the world. So it might be interesting for, for anyone to read. Um, and then the AI Now Institute puts out a lot of interesting research asking these difficult questions. Um, and they also offer methodical solutions. So if you're the kind of reader that um, that says, OK, and then what? Uh, you would enjoy the, the AI Now reports and specifically systems of discrimination if you're interested in, in questions of discrimination. Excellent. And we'll put up links to all of these in the show notes. Also to your writings, uh, which are, of course, uh, very important and useful. Matt, Chinmay, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media 
and visit our webpage 